Buju, Tanse. Welcome to Mino Gandegan, the Good Boys Podcast, a show exploring reconciliation from an Indigenous perspective. I'm your host, Tim Fontaine. On this episode, we speak with some of the Indigenous literary world's strongest voices. We pose the question, has reconciliation happened in books? Has it happened within the lives of the authors? Stick around to find out. Our first guest is graphic novelist and award-winning author David Robertson, a member of the Norrie House Cree Nation currently residing in Winnipeg. His work is educational and entertaining and touches upon culture, history, community, while illuminating many contemporary issues. Welcome to Mino Gandagan, the Good Voice Podcast. I'm Melissa Blackwolf-Kixon, and I have a very special guest, David Robertson. Hello. Uh, why don't you uh, give us a little introduction? Where are you from? You know, who's your who's your mom? Who's your dad? Who's your cuckoo? Okay. Well, I'm. I mean, I've, I've lived most of my life in Winnipeg um, since I was about three years old. Uh, my mom was born and raised in Melita, Manitoba. Uh, my dad was born and raised in Norway House uh, Cree Nation. So that's uh, what my band is. Yeah. I mean, it's. Uh, I, I feel a strong connection to that community. Um, and I, I love going up there to visit, and I've been able to do some work in the schools there as well, which has been really nice for me. Um, but that's, uh, yeah, that's, part, that's who I am. I'm How do you feel like things have changed in terms of Indigenous representation in your industry? Yeah, in literature. Well, when I was growing up, it wasn't very good. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, probably not surprising. You know, growing up in the in the 70s and 80s and in early 90s as a kid, um, you know, reading a lot of comics. And in comics, you know, representation is still not great uh, of Indigenous peoples. Uh, and so, and that, that w- really, that being one of the only ways that I was learning about myself, it was uh, you're either learning about um, these falsities, these kind of perpetuation of stereotypes, um, or you're learning nothing at all. My dad and my mom weren't together when I was younger. Uh, my dad was separated from my mom, and he didn't live with us, and so I didn't have that avenue either to learn about who I was, and so that that was pretty damaging, like all of that together. And and um, literature is one of the ways that we really can learn about the world. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and so what I've seen since I've started writing is is a really palpable shift uh, in how Indigenous peoples are being represented in literature. More importantly for me, it's more and more Indigenous writers. You know, established writers or new writers are are telling their stories, mm-hmm. um, and that has helped to shift the way that we are represented in literature because we're telling own voice stories, stories of truth from our own perspectives and our own experiences. And what happens when you have that is you have a readership in Canada that is hungry for learning about Indigenous peoples. I think that's important that they're learning from our our own experiences and our own histories. I feel that 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 is that is something I've seen happen probably over the past ten years. Have a lot, a lot of work to do, mm-hmm. um, but I, I have seen a change, and it's been, it's been good to see. What does reconciliation mean to you? Because it's kind of, it's kind of a buzzword. Everyone's mm-hmm. talking about it. I mean, it is, it is buzzwordy. I've actually called it that often when I've been speaking lately. It's been the focus of all, a lot of my public speaking is, is that because I feel like as a buzzword, we can almost disassociate ourselves from it, and, um, and, and it feels easier than it is. I think that reconciliation is something that is goes beyond just looking at a relationship between Indigenous and, non, and non-Indigenous Canadians. I was at a school in uh, Norway House, it was Jack River School, um, right after Tina Fontaine's uh, murder trial ended, 
and um and we were kind of thinking i was kind of thinking like where do we go from here and i was talking with the principal about it and she had said well we need to start uh, really closer to the beginning of it all and the and where that trauma has led us and in, in, in individuals and in in families and in in this community in particular she said uh in the school we're asking teachers who are still traumatized to to um lead our youth mm-hmm. uh and to help our youth to heal but we can't do that if we're if we're, if we're we're not heal, heal ourselves, mm-hmm. and I think that can be expanded into into the conversation of are are we able to heal that relationship, that broader relationship, when we're still broken? I feel like reconciliation needs to be uh, pulled back and 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 started at a more personal level, mm-hmm. um, and it can happen between a uh, father and a son, mm-hmm. or an in, within an individual first. That healing needs to happen first before. I can heal anything with you. Mm-hmm. You know, I need to be healed first. And I think likewise with non-Indigenous Canadians, there's a healing that needs to take place as well. Mm-hmm. Because we've grown up, and, I, and I, I've, I've lived on both sides of it. You know, my mom's white, and I grew up essentially white in River Heights here in Winnipeg. Um, and I needed to heal from the negative stereotypes that I, I was raised on as a child and the, the ways that I viewed Indigenous peoples. And, and I still see those views and those beliefs being... Uh, articulated, um, and I think that's a problem, and I think that's something that that people need to recognize in themselves and heal from, as well. And and that's I think part of where the, those truths come in, mm-hmm. and and the re- representation and the truths that we're telling through literature. That's one of the ways that we can learn about and heal from the ways that we thought things were, to realize that the way things are. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, my own personal journey of reconciliation has really happened between my father and I, mm-hmm. and learning about his history and his family and his cultural background, his community. And the more I learned about his life, the more I learned about myself, and the more it helped me to heal, and the more it helped him to heal, and the more it helped us to heal. Mm-hmm. And that's the process. And it's going to take a long time. The trauma's over, and it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still living in colonial Canada. And yeah. so we can't really heal from something that's still happening right now. Uh, and so we need to look at the systems we have in place as well. And so it's this broad-reaching thing that in, involves um, everyone's participation, but on different levels. And and everybody, I think, needs to look at what it means to them personally to heal and to have a conversation, to learn, and then to do that collectively. And um, yeah, it's a, it's going to take us a long time, but we all need to be patient and to and, and realize that we're in it together, and we have different roles in the process. But it's important that we are a part of it. What what do you see, hope to see change? The focus of my work has been um, to think about what we're giving the next generation. Uh, so whether um, whether a, an adult is reading the book, a book that I've written, what it's doing is it's allowing them to learn and to become educated and to and to see the truths in this country that uh, maybe they didn't know before, mm-hmm. uh, in a, in a, in a non-accusatory way, in a yeah. non-judgmental way. Um, I never say to anybody um, that they're wrong to feel that the things that they do or, they're, um, or to get angry at someone for thinking the things that they do because I, I understand that it comes from a place of ignorance where there wasn't an opportunity to learn before. Mm-hmm. And if we, do we haven't had that opportunity, then what do we expect somebody to know? I, I was in a school in Calgary, and there was a teacher there. I had asked her to read this book to this class before I got there. I usually do that just so they're prepared so after I'd done my spiel with them, um, the teacher told me a story about the week before I got there, and she had read this book to the class, and the next day a parent came up to her and said, 
what did you read my kid? And the teacher thought, oh, no. Oh, no. no, this is not going to be a pleasant conversation <laughs> because it can be intimidating to teach a child about residential school history mm. if you don't know how to do it and we yeah. don't have the tools to do it. So the teacher showed the parent the book and, and the parent said, well, I had never learned about residential schools before mm. and my child taught me that history. Oh, my gosh. And, and so that is something that, um, to me, is what that looks like. Mm-hmm. is enabling our parents and teachers through literature, through giving them tools that makes their job a little easier, um, enables them to teach that history to their child or their student. And and what you're doing there is you're creating this movement of, of knowledge. Um, and that knowledge opens up a conversation between people. And to me, that what's, what, that's what reconcil- reconciliation really is. It's, it's me sitting across from you and us talking to each other from a place of truth and seeing each other on a human level Mm -hmm. and seeing through stereotype and actually listening and learning from each other. And I think that's, it sounds simple, but it's, uh, that's what it looks like to me. Mm -hmm. And, and so my work is focused on enabling that conversation through providing knowledge through literature. Um, and, and I'm, and I, I know so many other writers who are doing that work. And um, it's one of the most vital things that's happening in Canada right now is that movement in can- Canadian literature towards uh, telling stories of truth. Uh, yeah. And um, um, what advice would you give to young Indigenous folks who want to enter the same industry? What advice would you give to youth who are entering at a different time, at a different climate? Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an, it's a vital time for youth to be thinking about how they're going to add their voice to that truth. Um, and in, in a way, I guess, it's, it's, it's a bit of an easier time, in a way, to, to tell your stories because publishers are looking for those stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and in whatever genre, whatever way that you want to write, um, I would say to always think about the truth that you're telling through that writing. And, you know, whether it's a middle-grade fantasy or whether it's memoir or whether it's comics or I would always say to think about the the role that you have and the importance of that role and in, in whatever story you're telling to teach somebody something um, from your life and from your perspective and from what you know because those are the stories that we need right now and and the fact that the change that we want to see in this country is kind of come from them it's not going to come from me mm-hmm. um, and it was it was the same visit to Norway House I was uh, spending the day at the Helen Betty Osborne Education Resource Center there. And then I, at the evening, um, Twitter was blowing up and, and um, the not guilty verdict came in for, for um, that man. And um, I was sitting there, I was crying, and I was, uh, my wife was, telling, was talking to my wife, and, and, um, I was, but I was alone in my hotel room, and I just thought, where do we, like, where do we go from here, and what do I tell the kids that I'm going to speak to tomorrow because I was going to Jack River School that day, the next day, and and uh, I had to visit with the entire student body. I had to meet with all these kids, all these kids that felt like their lives weren't worth anything because of what is what it was happening in this country, mm-hmm. whether it, wh- whether it was the Colton Bushy trial, whether it was the Tina Fontaine trial, was um, wondering what their lives meant, and. I spent the day with those kids, and in every classroom that I went to and every class that I visited with, I ended by telling them that, and it was one of my friends, Sherry, who wrote The Marrow Thieves, 
who told me to tell them something too because I was I was tweeted about it. I said, "What do I tell these kids?" And mm-hmm. I I just don't really know right now. And she said, "Just tell them that we love them." And so at the end of every class, I said, "I want to tell you guys that I love you mm-hmm. and that we need you." Mm-hmm. and that you are more important than anything else because your voice is what's going to change this country. And I think that any writer or anybody who has any sort of dream to be anything, um, they need to think about whatever they choose to do, how they're going to teach somebody. And whether it's through literature or dance or or music or um, being a doctor or a teacher, whatever it is, to think about and take seriously the role that you have in this process of reconciliation and um, because those are the voices that we need to have. And if we're starting things out now, then it's the youth role to continue it and to, and to grow it and to ensure that the place that we're heading towards in the future is a place that we want to be is a good place um, because um, that's, what, that's what we need. And we get there through truth. Well, those are really amazing answers. And I think there is so much validity and so much truth to what you what you say, especially in terms of it's the young people. Like, it's their voice that matters. It's their decisions that matter. Um, and it's up to us to provide that love and support to them so that they so that they can be heard. They have to know that we need them because after this year, um, they're not so sure. It was even in my daughter. I have five kids myself, and um, it was I, I got home from Norway House that day, and my 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 wife took my daughters to the march for Tina Fontaine, and I was lying there with Lauren, my eight-year-old, and she looked at me and she said, "You know, Daddy, nobody was there for her." And I was like, "Why do we have to have this conversation?" <laughs> You know, yeah. and, 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 but we had to have it, yeah. you know, and so that's, that's kind of what I'm talking about is mm-hmm. I had to turn to her and say, Lauren, you know, you're right. Um, yeah. But, but we're, we need to be there for her now mm-hmm. and we need to be there for you. Yeah. So that you can be there for somebody else. I just wanted to say um, on behalf of the Good Voice podcast, Miigwech for being here. I'm going to go home and cry now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. Welcome back to Minogandagan, the Good Voice podcast, a show exploring reconciliation from an Indigenous perspective. We just spoke with author David Robertson. Be sure to check out his work at www.darobertson.ca. Up next, our second guest is award-winning author and poet Lee Maracle from the Stalo Nation in the Fraser River Valley. With a great body of work that focuses on issues from an Indigenous woman's perspective, Miracle is an award-winning poet, novelist, performance storyteller, scriptwriter, artist, and keeper mythmaker among the Stalo people. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. <laughs> As an Indigenous author, do you feel like the literary world has changed uh, once the TRC came out with the 94 Calls to Action? I think that the calls to action have uh, motivated people to do something more than they're doing. I think it was a wake-up call for everyone, and uh, those who have a conscience woke up. I don't think it affected every publisher, but there aren't very many Indigenous writers at this point in our history. I think there's, they're, they're doubling their numbers by the day, though, you know, yes. <laughs> even the number of young people that are chasing me yeah. <laughs> around for the, the spoils. 
So it isn't uh, it isn't getting easier for us necessarily. It's just that more books are being made available for the public, which is good because then the public changes its heart. Without the books to read, people won't know who we are, and they they won't have feelings for us. There's still some rotten stuff coming across on public and social media and stuff. So there's still a lot of room for improvement in terms of media and publication. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I know some very stellar writers have got some huge advances for work and then sold 67 copies because the public right. doesn't want it, you know. <laughs> you never know. And I know one book that I sent to a publisher said it, said it was publisher years ago, 30 years ago now, was they said it was too beautiful to be nonfiction. It's still being published now, it's, oh, and it wow. was long listed for Canada Reads after 30 years of being circulated out there. Um, it did improve its sales somewhat, but uh, I think Katharina Verbet's The Break one, which was I was glad of. I was pulling for her, uh, Katharina uh, book, The Break. And the, the uh, jurist thought so, too, that it's fresh and new, and that's good that the younger writers are winning awards. There's quite a few Indigenous writers out there, and yes. there's quite a lot of choices. Uh, so that doesn't mean we're selling as many books as Canadians do. You know, white people still like themselves. <laughs> and I think one of my task cases is my conversations with Canadians. It was about them and for them, and of course it sells a whole lot more than all my other books. So the industry is responding positively, but the public isn't yet. It is, hasn't caught up, which is good, though, because... Before it was the other way, the industry wasn't too positive, but the public was. You know, that's a very accurate description of, you know, sort of the climate of the literary world right now. As this podcast goes on, we are talking about reconciliation. So I just I wanted to get everyone's own definition. Like, what does reconciliation mean to you? Okay, well, this is a tough one. First of all, I have tremendous respect for the three people on the TRC, starting with, you know, my personal hero, Mary Sinclair. Senator Sinclair has just just did wonders with what he was handed. And the same with Marie Wilson. She continues to work very tirelessly. And Willie Littlechild, they all go out into the world and, and do what they can toward getting the 94 calls to action up and up and on their feet. So the work has not ended for them. They're still doing TRC work. But the TRC itself was, to me, an exercise in voyeurism. It was people disclosing. My, our, our people disclosed. And they, the, the fact that they had to take the government to court to get the, the documents to verify the disclosures, it just tells you where the government was. They weren't interested in dealing with the truth. So that was the first part that was really, really missing. And here's all these people telling their story. In the South African reconciliation, in order to not get charged, you had to tell the, you what you did. You had to confess to your, the people you hurt. Everywhere else in the world but Canada. In Canada, it's us getting up and outing ourselves as victims of se- sexual abuse. And that makes it national voyeurism of the worst sort, that there isn't going to be reconciliation until all 94 calls action are met. And so I'm hoping at some point to get a chance to talk to the three uh, heroic people that led the charge and say, in your talks, can you emphasize nothing about us without us? 
that is the life of an indigenous person to get the least little thing. The inquiry took us 30 years of fighting, and it's not even adequate. So it just gets, you want to tear your hair out, you know, kick your own ass, because (laughs) somebody's got to do something here. Something has to shift. What do you think would be the perfect shift? Well, ask. Talk to us. Yeah. That's the perfect shift. I am a very persuasive person. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm unbelievably reasonable despite what has happened to me. We are often the ones who who do the most work. Yes. You know, in terms of reconciliation or even in in terms of anything. Anything. We do the most work around it. Yeah. You know, it's always 12 women and one guy. (laughs) (laughs) 12 disciples and the the leader. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The leader is always the guy, too. Yeah. We're we're not stupid. Patriarchy. Set him up in front. (laughs) Don't want to say. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. terrible. Did you have like other indigenous folks that you could look up to? There was one. Okay. <laughs> there was one. There was one. <laughs> <laughs> Maria Campbell's half breed. He preceded me. Uh... That brings me to my last question, uh-huh. which is for for those young indigenous folk who are growing up in a climate of. Um, you know, very politically charged, a lot of racial tension and who are just, you, you know, finding, trying to find their their grounding. What advice or words of wisdom would you give to young Indigenous folks who are wanting to, to walk that same path that you did, you know, of being an author? Reclaim the poetic voice orally. Reclaim your oratory and respect your oratory. I was talking to a young will-be writer. He's going to be a writer when I finish with him <laughs> um, the other day. And he starts off a sentence, and then he starts off another sentence. And I said, okay, the first thing we're going to do here is discipline your orality. You're an Aboriginal, so you've got to be oral. He said, and how do I do that? And I said, well, finish the first sentence you started with. And he says, oh, God, I don't know what that was. And he says, yes, I said... You weren't listening to yourself. So that's the first step, is don't say anything you can't hear. Because <laughs> <laughs> you'll find yourself telling lies. <laughs> that is such sage advice. Promising <laughs> 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 people that you'll do something and then forget it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's the first thing, is uh, disciplining our orality. The second thing is never using a word on paper that we haven't said. And that way we'll use our own language, our own English. And if you read Katharina Vermette's uh, The Break, you can see it. I'm sitting here and I'm waiting for you. Oh, my God. I can't read that chapter without falling apart. (laughs) I'm just thinking about it. My eyes are filled with tears. It's so beautiful. (laughs) And shows how absolutely fearless we can be. So that's the next thing. Don't say anything you don't absolutely believe. If you'll die for it, you can say it. You'll become a great writer. And that's why reconciliation can work. You know what Murray keeps saying? We got this in trouble through education, and education will get us out. And what he's hoping is that Canadians are educated to us, that they eventually become us. That's the hope. 
that's what we dream of. That's what us old people can offer as the best for our children. Everything will be fine is get them to be more like us. We have made progress. <laughs> just a little more people. Yeah, <laughs> just a little more. Burn it on your back and let's go. <laughs> your talent and and your your words, they, you know, they will resonate in so many people. And I think you've done so much work towards reconciliation whether it was a conscious decision or not. You've put in so much work and labor and hours and days and years on behalf of myself and on behalf of everyone here. I just, I want to say a huge miigwetch to all the work that you've done. Okay, well, thanks for calling. Welcome back to Minogandagan, the Good Voice podcast, a show exploring reconciliation from an Indigenous perspective. We just spoke with author Lee Miracle. Be sure to check out more of her work at your favorite local book retailer or library. Finally today, we are joined by our third guest, photographer, artist, poet, and tour de force, Tanil Campbell, a Dene Métis woman from the English River First Nation. Tanil, welcome. Hi, thank you. So Tanil, tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. So as you know, I'm Tanil Campbell. I'm Dene from English River First Nation, and on my maternal side, Métis from the Patash area. The last time I saw you, um, you were in Winnipeg for the Red Rising Laughter's Medicine show, and Uh you did a live reading from your Indian Love Poems book, and it was amazing. I think what was so unique about your poems was just how raw and real they were. It's something that, you know, in the Indigenous community, I feel like it's kind of taboo to talk about king poetry out of hickeys (laughs) but it's so real and it's something that everybody experiences so much shame around around love and around sexuality so it was what inspired you to to write indian love poems well i had gotten out of a long-term relationship and seriously like 12 years when i started dating him i didn't even have a cell phone so (laughs) I know, emerging into this world where when you meet somebody, it's not necessarily in person and having to like figure out what that meant and what that meant as an indigenous woman and navigating these different social media platforms and the disasters that would come with it. I mean, the good times for sure, but I think it's the disasters that really kind of made us start laughing about it and opening up these discussions. And being a writer naturally, I was the kind of person who's like, (laughs) this deserves a poem. Yeah. (laughs) And the collection just grew. How do you feel that this industry has changed in terms of Indigenous representation? Well, as a photographer, definitely Indigenous representation is hard won by and Mm -hmm. hard fought for by us. Every beautiful picture of an elder there's a hundred Beckys in a headdress thinking they're sexy. So so it's definitely problematic and we're definitely pushing, but luckily there's strong root, a strong foundation of indigenous photographers kind of pushing forth and making our grievances known. We can photograph our people in a way that's not destructive. 
And then as a poet, we've always been storytellers. We've always had our stories and mastering the English language as our people have done just allows us another medium in which to tell our stories. And growing up, I've been surrounded by indigenous storytellers and indigenous artists. I didn't really feel the gap until I got into like a mainstream society where not everyone looked like me or sounded like me. Even in your answers, they're poetic. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like sitting here like, yes, yes. (laughs) As an Indigenous woman and as an artist, what does reconciliation mean to you right now? I think reconciliation is one of those buzzwords that have kind of lost. Mm-hmm. I wasn't necessarily a fan of with it in the beginning. And I think more so Canadian society thinks of it as both, both teams coming to the table. Whereas I'm like, nah, bro, we, were, we are the table. We were always at the table. It's this about you educating yourself and becoming aware and, you know, try not to be so ignorant mm-hmm. and honoring your treaty obligations. Reconciliation isn't a two-way street. Reconciliation is you, as a non-Indigenous person, waking the F up and becoming a better Canadian. That is a good definition. Everyone has a different answer. Every Indigenous person has a different answer, and the word has a different meaning for everybody else. It's always up to us to figure out what the word means. And if we're going to come up with the the, the meanings, then better start meaning something to the rest of the population that lives, you know, on Turtle Island. What do you think the ideal outcome would be? So the TRC has released their 94 calls to action. Mm-hmm. Um, for you, you know, as an Indigenous woman, as a mother, as a poet, you're, you're everywhere all the time. What is the ideal outcome for the truth and reconciliation? The, Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, that's a big one. That's a big one. I have another cup of coffee. <laughs> We're just getting right into it. You know, it's like a band-aid. I We're know. just going to rip it off. It's like a casual Friday. It's cool. <laughs> um, I think the final outcome, not even so much with Truth and Reconciliation, which is which is a big undertaking in itself, but which a lot of Canadians ignore. But if I stripped away policies and actions where nobody's taking action and papers that nobody listens or does action upon except quote in academic papers years later and investigations that go nowhere. I think the ideal outcome is all I really want is a Canada where my daughter is safe to walk down the street. That's all I really want. Like, I don't think that's big. I don't think that's amazing, but I want to be able for her to grow up safe and healthy, for her education to be paid for as it should be, for her health to be taken care of, for her treaty rights to be honored. I want her and her cousins to be able to go to a club and not have to worry about becoming another statistic. And these are everyday common hopes for our children. And the fact that we have to worry about so much trauma happening to them, and not not if, when. That's what I would like to change. I'd like to change that when to an if. That is such a good point. 
what advice would you give to young Indigenous folks who see what you're doing and they want to do the same type of work? I think for any young Indigenous artist out there who wants to make a living off their passion, their work, their art, their words, I never started writing with the hope that somebody would hear my words and be changed by them. But I think the more passionate and the more true you are to your truth, the more that you connect with people. Indian Love Poems is, yes, a poetry book about erotica and sex and sexuality. But, you know, underneath that tongue-in-cheek humor, it's about the politics of being an Indigenous woman and Mm -hmm. owning our body and body sovereignty in a Canadian society that often pushes us back. Well, there you go making poetry on my podcast. And I appreciate it so much. That's all we have for today. And thank you so much, Neil, for for your lovely words and just for being so dang smart. <laughs> thank uh. you for having me. This was fun. Welcome back to Minogundagan, the Good Voice Podcast, a show exploring reconciliation from an Indigenous perspective. We just spoke to Tanil Campbell. Be sure to check out her latest work, Indian Love Poems an amazing collection of Indigenous erotica at TennilCampbell.com. Miigwech to all of our guests on this episode, the first in our series. Thank you for sharing your stories and your thoughts on a subject that should be on every Canadian voice, reconciliation. We hope that you've enjoyed our conversations today and will tune in to future episodes as we engage in more thought-provoking conversations about reconciliation. We'll close off our episode with a track from DJ Shub from his record, Pow Wow Step. This is Indomitable, which features the Northern Cree singers.
Minogundagan was produced on Treaty 1 territory, the original lands of the Anishinaabek, Nahewak, Ojikri, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. Our executive producer is Alyssa Blackwolf-Kixon, our associate producer is Sasha Mark, and I'm your host, Tim Fontaine. Our theme music comes to us courtesy of Boogie the Beat. Check out more of his brilliant work at soundcloud.com forward slash boogie the beat. The interstitial music is courtesy of Bloom. You can hear more of their songs at bloom14.bandcamp.com. We would like to thank the Community Radio Fund of Canada, the University of Manitoba's Office of Indigenous Achievement, the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation, the University of Manitoba Students' Union, and UMFM 101.5 for their support in the production of this series.